Welcome to City Life Church, and this is our podcast. This is Pastor Dave Diefendorf, and we are so honored to have you join us today. Our passion is to help you discover who God is, grow in the likeness of Jesus, and lead well in this generation. I hope in this message, God will meet you where you're at and take you to the next level in your connection with Him and His kingdom. Enjoy the message. All right, everybody, hope you guys are well. You guys good? All right, you guys don't have a Chiefs game today, so you guys are a little lackluster, but it's going to be great because God's Word's here, so it's going to be good. Um, uh, just real quick, we, over this last season, we here at City Life have been trying to really raise our game when it comes to who we are before the Lord, and part of that is being mighty in God's Word, and so uh, we have a little new little signage over here, so Sundays we're going through Mark and our life groups, we're going through Colossians, and we encourage you. If you aren't doing kind of a daily devotional, uh, the Bible app has a lot of daily devotions. If you aren't doing one of those, jump into the book of Psalms. Uh, It's fantastic devotional time to just open up God's Word in the morning, kind of get some vision and get on with your life. Amen? So um, that's where we're kind of dialing up in this season. So um, we dove into, started diving into the Gospel of Mark last week, and just to kind of catch you up... um, This gospel is written by a guy named John Mark. He was a scribe that followed the Apostle Peter and, at certain times, the Apostle Paul. These are kind of the major players in the New Testament church after Jesus goes. And uh, he's writing an eye account witness. He's basically writing Peter's eye account witness of what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he did and what he said. Well, this, of all four Gospels that we have, Mark is the only one whose audience is for a Gentile audience. So all the others were kind of written to the low-hanging fruit of the culture, the Jews. They knew God's story, but for Mark, he's writing to an audience that is primarily Gentile. They don't know really the background of the Old Testament. And so for us here, uh, that's kind of good news for us because some of us don't know kind of that Jewish Old Testament history, and so reading through Mark can give us clues as to what this story has been and where they find themselves in the middle of the story, and then they respond. And so uh, last week, we kind of broke down Mark into kind of two different parts. Mark has uh, 16 chapters, and in the first part, uh, Mark reveals uh, Jesus as being the servant who rules. Now, another caveat about Mark's gospel is he doesn't have a lot of Jesus' teachings in it. It actually has more of Jesus' works, his miracles, what he did, and, and stories of that nature. And, uh, and so here he presents Jesus as the servant who rules. And then the back half, he flips. First half, we find Jesus primarily in the region of Galilee. And then that second half is when Jesus turns his eyes towards Jerusalem. And that back half is the ruler who serves. The ruler who serves. And so last week, we looked at if we were reading this gospel for the first time, what would we kind of see or pick up about this man, Jesus, that Mark is writing about? Well, first, we saw that Jesus baptizes people in the Holy Spirit. Okay? And then we saw Jesus having authority over demons and demonic oppression, people under demonic oppression. And we saw Jesus even having authority over the religious people around him. He was speaking with way more authority 
than the other Pharisees or the teachers of the law that were kind of around him in the day. They began to get agitated around Jesus because he had authority. And then, last, and then we saw that Jesus is here building a new family. He's calling people to himself, and not the type of people that you would imagine. If you would imagine, you know, if it's God in the flesh and he's here, he's probably calling the best of the best, right? Kind of the best uh, academics, the best uh, communicators, the best, you know, if you were wanting to get a message out to all of humanity, you'd probably get the best team around. But Jesus gets these average fishermen and takes them and trains them in three and a half years with the greatest message of all time, and then he goes, and then he says, hey, see, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit, the one I promised. So, today, we're going to cover from Mark 4 to Mark 8 and a half, all right? So, we're just going to pick up a few stories along the way to just kind of highlight some points for us, okay? So, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you, God, for your word. Father, I pray that, Lord, as we spend time with you here this morning, Father, no matter where we're at, where we're at with you, God, that you would speak to our heart. Father, that you would speak clearly to us a message that you have for us here this morning, God. Father, we ask that, uh, Lord, your presence, God, would just illuminate the word to us. Lord, there's some men like myself that God need extra grace to really get what you're saying. And so, Lord, we just need you here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, uh, imagine reading this for the first time. Imagine reading this gospel of Mark for the first time, and it's announcing this message of Jesus. Well, you've heard that he's done these things so far, but the, continue, the story continues and in chapter 4, we pick up a story of Jesus and his disciples. Jesus had been teaching all day from a boat to this gathered crowd along the seashore. And on that day, in Mark 4, verse 35, let's dive in. On that day when Jesus had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, Jesus, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this man Jesus that has the authority to command the storm to be still? Well, Jesus, tired, tired from a long day of ministering to people, is in this boat on the Sea of Galilee, asleep, totally snoozing. The storm must have been terrific because these disciples who were fishermen are freaking out, right? These are the veteran fishermen. They're freaking out. It must have been a really, really big storm. But still Jesus is asleep on the boat. The Sea of Galilee, just to kind of give you a little history of this Sea of Galilee, it's quite interesting. Uh, where they currently were, it was notorious for storms that would come upon them all of a sudden. The storms uh, fell suddenly 
Uh, off to the uh, northwest of the Sea of Galilee is this famous mountain called Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon, uh, it was kind of down this Jordan Valley. It hit the Sea of Galilee. Uh, these storms would come upon them so, so violently that at a depth of 650 feet below the Mediterranean Sea, so it's way below sea level, these storms would just come on all of a sudden and be quite significant. Well, the disciples are freaking out. But Jesus is this picture of tranquility in the midst of chaos. He rebukes the storm and confronts his disciples' lack of faith. But see, Jesus has the power to still storms. That's the point of the whole story. He has the power to still storms, literally. And it seems that as I've read thus far, it seems that he's maybe doing the same thing in people's lives. That he has the authority and the ability to calm people's storms in their life. We believe theoretically in the supernatural power of God, but when actual crisis hits, we become terrified. And no wonder he asks, why are you so fearful? Why do you have so little faith? <laughs> no one is exempt from the storms of life. But just as the disciples who initially feared the storm later came to revere Christ more, so the storms we face bring us into a deeper knowledge of God. Who is this, the disciples wondered, that even the wind and the waves obey him? If you don't bail out, listen to this, if you don't bail out in the storm of your life on God, God will and he promises to pull through for you every time. It's just I've seen so many times where people go through storms and they say, God has left my boat, and they start living as if that's true. And they began to grow a wall between them and the only person, only God, that can rescue them. If we don't bail out of the boat, but turn to Jesus, who's already in our boat, your trials will teach you that no storm is big enough to, present, to prevent God from accomplishing his work in your life. No storm is big enough. And we should not be surprised by surprises in our life. They're divinely ordained moments whereby God's working in everyday circumstances to be who God made you to be or to reveal who He really is to you. Trials, tribulation, difficulties, desperate moments are oftentimes when God does His greatest work in our life, even though we don't want to admit it. If we think back, when did God really kind of get your attention at times in your life? It wasn't when they were putting the gold ribbon around your neck. It was usually probably when the storm was at its peak and you cry out to God. Storms aren't fun, either at sea or in real life. Yet we learn lessons through storms that we would never learn in life any other way. And these storms become a history that you form before the Lord not to derail you, not to get you off track, but actually to form and make who God made you to be. And so it's embracing those storms. We have a generation around us and everything kind of is geared towards us avoiding anything that, that, that brings us anxiety or that's going to bring a confrontation. But those storms are coming at us whether we want it to or not. 
And Jesus is the one that can steal storms. Then we read on, and then we see Jesus, the one who has this authority over demons, over religious authority, over nature. Jesus turns and gives that same authority to his disciples. What? Now, that was kind of unusual. A person usually who has great anointing, a great grace on their life, more often than not, they want the people coming for their anointing, and they love that. They love that. Oh, you're a great teacher. Oh, you're so wise. And so a lot of times, those teachers will kind of like hold on to that authority, thinking it best because if I give it out, they may ruin my reputation. If they get out and they're one of my, they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna destroy my good name. So I'm just going to kind of keep that because I don't trust other people. But here's God working in the exact opposite way. The one God that you would think, man, us knucklehead, broken people, you would trust with? No, no, no. You got keep that authority. No, because that's not who God is. I've made you to share my authority so that you can take dominion with me. So Jesus shares his authority, Mark 6, and he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money nor, or, uh, in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. So this kind of specific direction Jesus is giving because he's delineating themselves away uh, Uh, he's delineating them from beggars. Beggars will a lot of times carry bags around or these kind of other things that Jesus says, hey, don't bring those. Okay, so I'm sending you out like charged as my representative, not as a beggar. And there's a whole different mindset to that. Amen? And so uh, he sends them out. Jesus spent well over a year showing them what he was doing, how to bring the kingdom, bringing authority over these unclean spirits. These disciples got to kind of camp out with Jesus for a whole year, just watching. Wouldn't that be great? Just watching. No, Jesus, turn around. Hey, you pray for him. Hey, hey, no. The first year, it's just like, I'm just watching. I'm just watching him do it for a whole year. And then after, after, he's like, now you, I'm going to give you the same authority And it's like he was showing them the kind of life that they were made for from the beginning. This life of glorifying the Father, of loving broken people like like only God can. And pushing back the forces of evil that plague humanity and individuals from what God wants them to do. And it's the same purpose for which God has sent you and I into the world. The same mission. To glorify God. To love broken people. And to push back the forces of hell. Amen? Jesus gave these 12 men both the authority and the divine ability to do the job he sent them to do. They were not on their own. They were sent with delegated authority from the King of Kings. Like Jesus and his disciples, God wants to teach you how to walk in the authority he so generously gives. It's not just for you know, clergy or people that are full-time. This is for every son and daughter who follows Jesus, gives their allegiance to him, is filled with the Holy Spirit. This authority is for you. 
And part of a lot of times the tradition of history, or church is it dumbs us down to just be kind of nice Christians, nice people, and smile a lot. And that's a very different mission than what Jesus came to give us, which is to glorify God radically, to love people radically, and push back the forces of hell. And there's so much in our life that keeps us distracted from that very thing. Mm. And we all need help on that. We all need God. Help us to walk in your authority. It's a prayer over my, that I pray almost every day. God, help me walk in your authority that you paid the price to give. So Jesus gives this authority. It's unlike any other God I've ever heard of. And then we read another story. Mark 7, Jesus confronts not only the Pharisees' teaching, but he kind of goes to a whole different level and starts going after the jugular of their hearts. Jesus kind of goes to a new level with these Pharisees. Mark 7, verse 5, it says, The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy to you hypocrites, as it is written? Now, this is that word hypocrite. It's the only time you find it in the book of Mark. You find it in other gospels, but it's the only time you find it in Mark. And I think Mark specifically used this one word one time to elevate the confrontation that Jesus had with these Pharisees. And he says, While, well, did Isaiah prophesy to you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the, to the tradition of men. Seems like this is a recurring condition of the human heart. Religious ritual and legalistic traditions had taken over these Pharisees' lives and that it were enslaving them rather than freeing them. However, they were blind to their own bondage, their own self-imposed bondage, and they challenged Jesus with this air of spiritual elitism, spiritual superiority, self-righteousness. Why are you not following the rules, Jesus? They were completely off base. This is the true source of impurity. They think impurity comes into our lives from the outside by not washing our hands, by not ritually washing that dirt or the sin of the world can get into your life. But Jesus says, no, 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 the root of sin is not from out there. It comes from your human heart. It comes from out of your heart. Out of the heart comes is the wellspring of life. And if your heart is twisted or broken or disintegrated, it's going to have a negative effect on our life, to say the least. Um, it wasn't their hands that were unclean, but their hearts. It was pretty hard to compare hearts because only God can see hearts. So they thought in their thinking, how about we draw up a religious list of ex external activities and see who comes up on top? Yeah, that'll be a lot easier. They were not asking the question to get information. They were asking qu the qu this question of Jesus to incriminate him. Jesus does not even address their accusation about his disciples because they're coming to him saying, hey, your disciples are doing this. 
And the typical response would be that rabbi or that leader would take the hit. Or he would call out his disciples publicly in front of the person that, that opened, that, that said, hey, your disciples did this. It was very common. That was a teaching moment for that disciple to say, hey, we're going to teach you. Jesus doesn't do any of that. He actually puts it right back on them. The one thing Jesus did consistently was call out hypocrites and reveal them for who they truly are. He exposes the truth source of spiritual authority. It's not man-made traditions, but it comes by the Word of God. Jesus goes on to explain in part why their heart is far away from God. And it's because they hold the precepts of mere men to be equivalent to the sound doctrine of the living God. And so Jesus must have really stirred them up in their anger because he declared, basically what he's saying is your worship is worthless. Your worship is senseless. It's to no end. It's pointless and without result. They worship in vain. So Jesus is like, don't be like these hypocrites. Don't be following these hypocrites. And then he gives this even word of warning in Mark 8, 15. He says, he cautioned them saying, watch out. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, we don't make bread very much. For those of you who do, hopefully I explain this right. But uh, leaven uh, in bread, usually uh, they would have kind of an existing loaf of bread, but they would take a little port of that, and that had a little bit of yeast in it, and they'd put it in a little water and let it germinate, and then they'd take that yeast and they'd work it in the dough. Well, part of the yeast is that it works through the whole dough. Kind of that's why you sit it for an hour or overnight or whatever. So that yeast gets a chance to work through. It's what it does. It's its nature. That yeast will work its way all the way through. And Jesus is saying, beware of that same yeast from the Pharisees and that of Herod. What's he talking about? And the disciples didn't even know what he was talking about. They're, he had just fed 5,000. They're like, hey, maybe he's talking about fish and we don't have food. No, he wasn't talking about that. He was talking about watch out for the yeast of a religious spirit getting involved in you or the community that you're involved in. And in the same way, watch out for a political spirit getting involved in the community because those two things are the greatest threats to unity in my new church. Pharisees, hard, fundamental, religious extremists, and people that politicize things, and part of the politicization it divides. And we've experienced all of that, if you haven't been awake over the last seven years. And it, and it kind of, it ends to where it divides, and that spirit divides. And it's like, man, not in God's kingdom, not here. We'll talk about ideas, and we'll talk about policies but we're not going to get political because that is a demonic spirit and we're not going to give in to that. Jesus is saying, avoid the leavening influence of these false teachers and religious ideologies that run counter to God's way and watch out for the leavening influence of Herod, which seeks to divide people by ungodly lines. This is absolutely critical to maintain the integrity of the gospel in this generation and in all generations. Navigating the radical middle is a phrase popularized by a pastor from the 70s and 80s, Jordan, uh, John Wimber. It's kind of this, this radical middle. 
Let us not stray too far to the right or to the left. Let us live in this radical middle. Amen? All right. So, now this whole book, all the way. Now we're caught up. We're, we're landing the plane. Here we go. Last little section. So we've kind of read about this man, Jesus, how quite unique he is, the authority that he has, the things that he does. We come to the building climax of the book thus far. Jesus is walking with his disciples in Mark 8. He's walking with his disciples, and they're just outside Caesarea Philippi. And it's at the base of Mount Hermon, so it's at the other side, actually, of Sea of Galilee on Mount Hermon. So they've kind of over, and they're along the Mediterranean. And they're near a large spring that fed the Jordan River. Caesarea Philippi was originally named Panius after the Greek deity Pan. But here, Jesus is safe from the annoyance of Herod Antipas and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Here he prepares his disciples for him turning his face towards Jerusalem. Mark 8, 27. Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on his way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Meaning, what's the rumor? What have you been hearing? Verse 28. And they told him, John the Baptist. They think you're John the Baptist. Kind of come back to life. Others say Elijah for the same reason. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered to him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Jesus begins this conversation with, by asking a related question, who do crowds say that I am? In response, they had kind of various responses, but the opinions included several personages that had come back to life. Pointing to the fact that the crowds viewed Jesus definitely as someone special, but the crowd's guesses were obviously all wrong. And so Jesus directs this question to his disciples, who do you say? Peter then speaks up. And in an answer to the question, Peter affirms his belief that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, and that, more than that, that he was the Son of God. By this time, the disciples had... Uh, seen him casting out demons, had seen many miracles. He raised a widow's son. They'd seen him feed the 5,000. He knew, they knew he was more than just a prophet. He was absolutely unique. He was, in fact, God in the flesh. This event is a watershed in the gospel. It's this major declaration in Mark's gospel to say, this is who Jesus is. Unequivocally, very clear. This is who Jesus is. The miracle stories that affirm his power, authority, and deity of Jesus led to this declaration of this long-awaited Messiah has now truly come. And what's interesting is right after this, this is a double climax, okay, about God's, well, how do I explain this? So, Mark has Peter reveal to the reader that Jesus is the Messiah. But then Jesus goes up and does something right after this. He goes up and he climbs Mount Hermon with Peter, John, and James. 
and he climbs up to the top of this mountain. And it's said that at the top of the mountain, Jesus was transfigured before those three people. It was like his uh, body of flesh fell off, and it was like his glorified body. And they said they saw Moses and Elijah up there. It's called the transfiguration. But it's this kind of wild story, really. Caesarea Philippi was the Roman name for this region, but it had a crucial history. In the Old Testament, this region was called Bashan. Bashan was considered the gateway to the realm of the dead, the gates of hell. This was literally known as the place where the gates of hell were. Mount Hermon is the place where the sons of God came to earth in their rebellion that we find in Genesis 6. It's the very place that the fallen Elohim came down on earth, Mount Hermon. So Jesus climbs that same mountain with his three primary disciples and reveals to not only these three people, but all of the angelic host, who this man is. He is Messiah, the Son of God, came. God's long-awaited promise has now been made manifest. And Jesus is challenging the powers of darkness in this scene. And it's something that we kind of don't see unless we kind of see what's going on. But God's secret plan to send Jesus to pay the penalty for humanity's sin would be a full frontal assault on the gates of hell. See, the message of the gospel is because we're broken and God is holy, all of humanity is destined to hell. God doesn't send anybody there. We are just destined there because we are not holy. It is only because Jesus, who comes in this long-awaited promised Messiah to heal that rift, and only through Christ can that rift be healed in your life. And so in a nutshell, Bashan and Hermon are ground zero for these evil cosmic forces. And it's this full frontal assault. The Lord of the dead and his forces would not be able to withstand the force of the kingdom of God. And Jesus knew it. So Jesus picked this very spot to reveal to Peter, James, and John, and the evil fallen Elohim exactly who he was, the embodied glory of God. And he was putting Satan and his dark powers on notice from here. Jesus begins to turn his face towards Jerusalem. From this point on, the emphasis is on his crucifixion. Mark's gospel changes from a focus on who he is to his great redemptive act. And he pivots from Jesus being the servant who rules to become the ruler who serves. And so as we land today, the question is, who do you say Jesus is? Who is Jesus? Is he just a great teacher? Is he a God for you that just is there in the darkest night of the soul? In those chaotic moments where we just need that extra help and we cry out, God, would you help me? Or if it's this fear that, man, I know there may be an afterlife, but I just want to make sure and so I'll agree. None of those represent the kind of life that God has designed you for. And it always comes down, no matter who we are, to this question. How do we answer this question? Who is this Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? And my heart and our hope is that your heart would say, my Jesus is the King of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. 
He's the one since the very beginning, and he's the one that will bring all things to a close. He's the Alpha and the Omega. All things are held together by the strength of his hand. He's the one that redeems our soul. There's nothing we can do to redeem us. There's no good work. There's no niceness. There's nothing that we could put on from the outside that'll cleanse this heart that's so desperately, sinfully broken. And it's only through Christ that can come and heal that heart. Heal those wounds, those traumas, so he can put you on this path of who he's made you to be to reveal a God, a living God through your life. That your personality, your little giftedness, your idiosyncrasies, all of that being yielded by God, by a living God to say, man, I'm going to take this life and reveal who I am. Go. But he needs our heart. He doesn't need our kind of like mental ascent. He doesn't need kind of our Sunday attendance only. He needs our hearts so that he can be the God he actually is. He's not a God of the last minute rescue. He's the God of all creation that made you and holds every cell in your body together. That is who the God that, we're, that, that this gospel, Mark, is saying. This is who Jesus is. Serve him with your whole heart. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word today. Father, thank you so much for Mark, who God had a heart to write this gospel to Gentile people that didn't know your covenant story. And Father, for those of us here, God, I pray that, Lord, if we don't know you as king, if we don't know you as the leader and Lord of our life, the king who sits on the throne of our mind, our will, our emotions, our whole life. Father, if there's any of us here that has any doubt that you are not on that throne, God, that maybe we've been playing some religious games for a little while, or God, maybe we just haven't come around because, God, we've been around so many fakers. But Father, I pray that in this moment we would find the true you and we say, God, have your way. God, we give our heart to you. God, we give our allegiance to you. We give our leadership to you. We give our decision-making, our thought life, our emotions, and we submit it to you, Father. Holy Spirit, Father, there's, there's many of us here that God maybe had some, some history some trauma, some wounds that, Father, we felt that you maybe could never heal. Father, I pray that in this season, God, you would heal those. God, the things that we never thought you would heal, God, that you would heal. That you would show up in this generation as the mighty, powerful God that you are. But God, we put ourselves in a position where you have to show up. And in our lives, God, we're just desperate for you every day to show up and be God. Be God over our lives. God, be God over our families. Be God over our work, where we're at. Father, I pray that we would be your kingdom agents that you trained us to be. As you trained your disciples to go out with the same mission, Father, I pray that we would go out in the same mission. Lord Jesus, Lord, if there's any of us here that are hurting and God, it's like, man, I just don't have the bandwidth for the mission. Father, may this be a season of recovery. May this be a season of God tending to your heart and healing your wounds. And that's all right. That's part of the mission. 
Part of the mission is that God heals and restores His wounded warriors. And so, Father, I pray that, Lord, if there's any of us here that is in need of healing in their heart, Father, that we would be desperate and aggressive for the healing from You. Father, thank You, God, for the power of Your Word. And thanks for picking a fight with the enemy and winning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we hope this message has inspired you and challenged you to be the man or woman he's called you to be now and to see his kingdom grow in every area and arena of life. God is with you more than you know. For more information about our community here in Kansas City, please visit us online at citylifekc.org. And we'll see you next time on the City Life Podcast.